Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Stanley Brandis from the Department of Anthropology, and it's my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce this 34th Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture. Uh, the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series was initiated in 1937 in honor of Bernard Moses, who was a long-standing member of the faculty at the University of California, known for his contributions in political science and in history. Uh, one distinct, and this was late 19th century and through um, his death in the first third, at the end of the first third of the present century, uh, one thing that he was known for was his contributions to the study of Hispanic history and society, uh, Hispanic and Hispanic American history and society. And he was even more productive in his years as an emeritus professor than he was as a normal faculty member. He was, at the age of 80, uh, publishing away and making contributions which were, he was really the only, for many years, the only person in the United States who was actively engaged in studying the history of Spanish America. And it's in his honor that uh, this lecture series is held. Now, the person who I'm going to introduce today has a couple of things in common with Bernard Moses. That is Professor Eugene A. Hamill. First of all, he's made lasting contributions to the study of Hispanic America, particularly to Peruvian uh, archaeological uh, studies and social anthropological studies. And also, in his years as emeritus professor, he has remained as active, if not more active. I have not counted the actual number of pages, but certainly, if you look at his curriculum vita, uh, carefully, you will not distinguish any slackening in the publication rate uh, or in the kinds of publication outlets that he chooses to disseminate his research through. Uh, so I think he really is a very distinguished member of our faculty. When, sometimes when I'm asked, will I give an introduction? Well, I generally say yes, but I have this sinking feeling. Oh no, another thing to do. But I have to say that when Teresa Malengo, the organizer of this event, called me and asked if I would introduce Gene Hamill, I got sort of a big smile inside. And uh, it's something that I really feel honored to do because he's been for decades literally a close friend and a very valued colleague. Gene Hamill is well known on this campus. He got his BA in anthropology here at Berkeley in 19, 1951. 
his PhD in anthropology as well at Berkeley in 1959, and has more honors than I could possibly take your time to tell you about. Among them is that he's an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Perusing his curriculum vitae is really an experience because already as an undergraduate, he was publishing in peer-reviewed journals, which is highly unusual. Prior to receiving the PhD, he had made published contributions in well-known outlets in the fields of folklore, kinship terminology, peasant society, California archaeology, Peruvian archaeology, and he had already published in Spanish as well as in English. The languages that he has worked in or on are numerous. He's worked in Spanish, Serbo-Croatian, those are the two main ones, but also in German. He has studied and published on aspects of Pomo, Zuni, Romanian, Burmese, Greek, and Old Church Slavic. So we're about to hear the reporting of an extremely erudite man who has a lot of experience working in many different cultures. His areas of expertise have remained surprisingly, uh, well, every once in a while you see kind of an odd publication in a field that he hasn't specialized in, but he has done a lot of work in folklore. Most of his work has been done on demographic problems from an anthropological point of view, and he's worked on mortality, and nuptiality, which I suspect are two of the subjects he's going to touch on today. He's done a lot of work in archaeology and in formal analysis, European peasant culture, particularly peasant culture of southeastern Europe, but also of Peru. He's done work in anthropological linguistics. And he's really the only colleague of mine, and probably one of the only people alive today in anthropology, though he's also a professor, I should mention, of demography, who has published in all, all four fields, all four subdisciplines of anthropology. Gene Hamill has extensive publications in archaeology, in social anthropology, particularly focusing on demographic issues, in linguistic anthropology, particularly in matters of kinship and formal analysis of terminology. But he also has publications in biological anthropology, physical anthropology. Uh, I don't think that there are a handful of practicing anthropologists today of whom this can be said. Again, a very special person. 
anyone who knows Gene Hamill, indeed anyone who's had even minimal contact with him, will attest that he's one of the most engaging storytellers of our time. In ancient Illyria, which is approximately the area part, which includes the area that he's going to be talking about, it, of which the area he's going to be talking about is included in ancient times, in ancient Illyria would have composed and recited epics. He would have been a teller of tales, a singer of songs. Today he brings us just the most recent of his fascinating narratives, Sex and Death on the Edge of Europe, Slavonian Demography, 1683 to 1900. Please join me in welcoming Gene Hamill. Thank you, Stanley. Thank you for your very generous introduction. I should note that it's very kind of you to compare me to Bernard Moses. The principal similarity between us that's aided us as emeriti is that neither of us are on any committees, and that's always an enormous <laughs> I'd like to express my thanks to the chancellor, to the dean of the graduate division, to the Moses uh, lecture committee uh, for their kindness in giving me this opportunity to present some results of recent research. Uh, also to my colleagues in Zagreb, uh, especially to uh, Yasna Chapo at the Institute of uh, Folklore, to members of the economics faculty in Zagreb, to the director of the uh, Archive of Croatia, to colleagues and former and current students here, uh, Ruth Duell, Patrick Galloway, Josh Goldstein, Ronaldo Grigori, Beata Herschen, Hans-Peter Kohler, uh, Maria Olujic, Ken Walker, uh, as co-authors and helpers in various projects, also to Ron Lee and Andrew Janos, who have given me some very valuable insights in the course of this research. I'd also like to thank uh, Teresa Malango for designing that marvelous poster. I don't think I could possibly live up to the dramatic promise uh, of, that, of that poster. I'd also like to thank uh, Joan Hamill for putting up with me uh, for so many years. <laughs> Hasn't been easy. This, uh, this talk is about early fertility decline and fertility variation in a frontier region with an exploitative social structure, increasing poverty, low levels of investment, ethnic diversity from the 17th through the 20th centuries. Um, I'd like to um, put this discussion in a larger frame of how to understand social behavior. There are two basic intellectual traditions, two competing traditions. One of them is shared by evolutionists and economists, and it's posited on a universal psychic unity of rational thought in which all peoples, given enough time and enough resources, will eventually come to common solutions. I suppose the point man on this in anthropology was Lewis Henry Morgan. The philosophy has a kind of 18th century flavor about it. The second tradition is shared by many humanists and many anthropologists and holds that different cultures are irreconcilably different, even to the point of mutual incomprehensibility, 
that given enough time and whatever, they'll always find unique solutions to problems that will be quite different. The point man on this in anthropology is probably Benjamin Lee Whorf, who, uh, who started life as an in, in the insurance business, and I don't want to give away my, my own feelings about this, but I think Benjamin Whorf should have stayed in the insurance business. <laughs> this has a 19th century flavor. It's uh, romanticist to, to its core. Uh, it uses especially ethnic particularism as a style of explanation. In fact, the blueprint for uh, the Yugoslavia that emerged out of the First World War, a book called The Balkan Peninsula by Jovan Svic, uh, uh, is replete with uh, arguments about folk psychology and about how the different nations of the region are irreconcilably uh, different. Uh, so you can see that with respect to these more recent paradigms, that I'm e easily two or maybe even three centuries uh, behind the times, uh, at his point in history, Bernard Moses was only one or two centuries behind the times, for which I applaud him. Um, I'd like to uh, put up just a few main ideas. I want to ask questions about how to explain variation in social behavior to ask whether ethnicity is important or useful as an analytic concept, to ask whether we can trust what social actors tell us about their lives, and to ask whether numbers help. And in doing that, I'm going to go down through a series of presentations of data, and then in the end, ask rhetorically what Professor Moses might have thought about all of this. Now. First, I'll show you a map so that we'll know where we are. Slavonia is the area of Croatia that lies between the Sava and the Drava River. It terminates anciently all the way down here in the corner of that triangle near Belgrade and used to be thought of as extending all the way to Zagreb, although in modern times it's thought of as terminating here along the banks of the Ilova River uh, that runs into, uh, into the Sava. This area has a complicated and in many ways very unhappy history. In 1526, when the Hungarians were defeated at Mohac on the Danube, I'm trying to find Mohac on this map there, whoops. Uh, I can probably find it more easily if I look up here. Here's Mohac right here. When the Hungarians were defeated, the Ottomans rolled on toward Vienna, which they reached in 1683. They were defeated at the gates of Vienna under Jan Sobieski in 1683 and rolled back down to the Sava by 1691. Um, when the Ottomans came into the area, almost everybody left. And when the Habsburgs came back down, almost everybody left. And there was enormous population turnover. 80% of the population of this area disappeared in 1691 to be replaced by enormous migrational inflows. The first census was taken in 1698, 
And in 1745, the area was divided into two different zones, a military zone, which lies underneath this dotted line, up into this re-entrance and out here toward the Adriatic, and a civil zone, which is the rest of Slavonia. The military zone was uh, like the zone in which the Cossacks lived in, uh, in, uh, in Russia. It was occupied by uh, people who were obligated to permanent military service in exchange for uh, grants of land. Um, and uh, civil Slavonia, as the rest of civil Croatia, was occupied uh, largely by peasant serfs under the new feudalism uh, that uh, emerged after the Habsburgs rolled back into this territory where the land was controlled by favorites of the court, large magnates, and large landowners. Um, Wachter and Kohler and I have shown that uh, this, uh, this area in 1698 and uh, to some extent subsequently was characterized by extensive agriculture, very low level of technology, extremely rapid population growth, mostly through immigration in the first years, running about 10% a year, but then tapering 3%, 2%, 1% by about 1900. An increasing complexity of household organization as peasants struggled to achieve efficiencies on their land, uh, which they were able to achieve mostly by economies of scale and internal specialization in large joint households. Uh, clear evidence of expansion to marginal lands uh, starting in the uh, late 1800s with the draining of swamps and the cutting down of oak forests, moving up into the higher elevations where the soil was not as good. Civil emancipation, the emancipation of the civil serfs occurred in 1848, uh, and within about 10 years, although this was a nice, happy, brief period of freedom, compensation burdens kicked in about in the late 1850s, uh, and they were obliged to compensate their landlords for the value of the land that they had acquired, and economic distress soon settled over the land. The military serfs were emancipated in 1871. They did not have any compensation burden, and as we'll see, they were in some ways better off than the civil serfs. There is enormous ethnic diversity in the area, with Catholic Croats, Orthodox Serbs, Germans, Hungarians, plus smaller minorities. The area overall, especially in the 19th century, was characterized by failures of economic development, poor transport, the inability to capitalize, overpopulation, and finally, especially beginning in the 1890s and into the early part of this century, enormous flows of migration out of the area to North America, South America, and Australia, and there had been already in the 19th century, a strong pattern of out-migration of young adults to seek wage work throughout Europe. Uh, now, along with this, along with this uh, economic development, demographic development, or the lack of it, uh, there was a, uh, there was a strong moral debate over fertility control. The first evidence of concern about fertility control emerges in folklore around 1732, um, and then is more explicitly presented in an epic poem composed by one of the founders of Croatian literature, Matija Anton Relković, uh, who wrote in 1762 uh, an, an epic called uh, The Satyr, 
or the wild man, Satyr, Ilya Divyichovic. Um, Rokovich was a very interesting character. His father um, had been a, a military serf, a captain um, in the Croatian portion of the Austrian army in the military border, who although he was himself illiterate, had a great respect for learning, and he sent his son at about the age of nine to learn Latin at the Franciscan monastery in Cernik. Cernik is the town in which I did most of my work on my recent uh, uh, trips over there, and uh, I worked in the library room of the Franciscan Monastery, and almost surely that was where Rukovich learned his Latin, and from the look of the table, it was old enough that he probably had sat at the same table. Uh, he went to high school, to gymnasium in uh, in Hungary, learned Hungarian, was captured in the Seven Years' War, uh, and quartered, given his parole, and quartered with a Prussian family who taught him French. Um, and there, in Dresden in 1762, he published this uh, quite remarkable epic. There is a canto in this epic which denounces, the whole epic, in fact, is a denunciation of his native peasantry for their sloth, uh, their immorality, their lack of modernity in 1762, uh, and so on. But in one canto, he particularly focuses on, on uh, birth control. And he says, I want to mention one more thing about the evils they do at weddings. And he comes down very hard on an old crone that he describes as sidling up to the bride on her wedding night, saying, don't let him touch you in bed. You'll be sorry. Uh, take steps to prevent births. And then he turns to this old woman and says, where did you get this knowledge? Did you learn it from Egypt? Meaning from gypsies, because gypsies were thought to come from Egypt. Uh, uh, did you get it from the Turks? Uh, so you can see that the orientalizing is not a new phenomenon in this, uh, in this, in this area. Uh, this moral debate goes on. Uh, there was a theory that you can call sort of the trinkets theory. The idea is that women didn't want to have children because they wanted to remain attractive and sexy. Uh, and so they kept taking various steps to put off having uh, children. Uh, this commentary goes on through the 19th century from the clergy, from medical doctors, from politicians. They talk about immorality, about the level of maternal mortality from abortion. They talk about ethnic suicide, uh, that Slavonian women were just letting the whole business go down the drain by not having uh, enough children. We see that in, on the op-ed page in the United States uh, from time to time, people talking about the birth dearth. Um, across the Drava in, um, in, uh, in Hungary, uh, authors spoke of what they called the sin of Transdanubia, which is this region over here uh, in Hungary. Uh, and, uh, and they quote the famous quote, which has been quoted in a number of countries, including uh, pre-revolutionary France. They cheat nature even in the villages. Um, in, uh, in Cernik, in the, in the uh, chronicle of the monastery of Cernik in 1864, there is a fairly long passage that speaks of a woman who came home to visit her parents and fell ill and died. And the doctor attested in the certificate that she had died of typhus. Um, but the suspicions of the authorities were aroused, and it was thought that she might have died as a consequence of abortion. So they exhumed the body and performed an autopsy to see whether that had happened. The, 
the, the Chronicle is silent as to why they cared so much about this issue to dig up this poor woman and perform an autopsy, but it gives you a feeling of the intensity of the abortion debate in 19th century and early 20th century uh, Croatia. Um, one of the uh, methods of, uh, of avoiding birth, uh, which is mentioned in 1732 and subsequently by Relkovich, is that the bride should bind herself up with cords, and for every knot in the cord, there will be one birth-free year absolutely guaranteed, your money back, if, uh, if that doesn't work. But they also uh, ingested oleander, uh, which is a very poisonous uh, plant. Uh, they ingested quinine, gunpowder. They used knitting needles. Uh, they used goose quills off the barnyard, which just freaked out the doctors because of the tetanus in the in the in the bar, in the, in the yards, and the uh, and the salmonella on the feathers, and so on. Um, there are girls' folk songs reported from the 1890s um, that joke about having abortions. Uh, I remember uh, one that goes. Uh, Anka, Anka, why are you so thin? You weren't this thin yesterday. Um, and Anka replies that uh, if she's pregnant, she'll go to the new shop and buy some powder. And the quote is, waste the little devil. So there was a lot going on that is reminiscent of some of the debates in the United States uh, today. Uh, a scholarly friar named Josip Buturac, uh, writing retrospectively in the 1940s, describes the villages of Slavonia and Moslavina, which is this area over here, and I quote, as nests of lust, adultery, and abortion. This fray was joined in uh, around 1940 by a uh, radical socialist feminist named Nada Sremets, who wrote a uh, political tract, small book, that was entitled, We, the Slavonian Women, Are Not Guilty. Um, and, where, and she recognized the problem of uh, abortion and of birth control and so forth, and was herself something of a nationalist and worried about the birth dearth. Uh, but instead of, like Relkovich, blaming this on the Turks, she blamed it on the capitalists. Um, and she gave, interestingly, literal interviews like ethnographic field notes with uh, women. And there are lots of abortion stories in these, um, in these field notes. You get stories like in a joint household with several daughters-in-law, the mother-in-law comes up to one of them and says, three is enough, you know what to do. Those kinds of explicit, explicit instructions to get rid of this uh, pregnancy. Women complain that they've had 9, 10, 15 abortions, and for the first couple of abortions, their husband paid so they could go to a decent abortionist, and after that, they wouldn't pay anymore, so they had to do it themselves at much greater risk. Uh, they complain, for example, that their husbands won't protect them, which means that the husband would not practice coitus interruptus. Um, Sremets, in an interesting chapter in this, asks the rhetorical question, how come the German, ethnic German settlers here are so prosperous and yet have so many children? And she responds by claiming that the Germans have had a much longer acquaintance with capitalism than the Croats have, and so they're used to it and they can handle it. Sremets missed an important analysis that was published by a Belgrade physician in the 1930s, a man named Boyan Pirtz, 
uh, <clears throat> who wrote a monograph on the decline of fertility in Slavonia, uh, an epidemiological survey of five counties, and he made a very interesting, well, he made several interesting observations. First of all, he proved to his satisfaction as a physician that this was not due to any kind of biological degeneration. He also pointed out that this is not some new form of moral debauchery because there's nothing new about the debauchery. It's, it's, it went all the way back to Relkovich. So he could say, you know, already in the 1760s, people were complaining about this new morality. So it's not new. He did observe that fertility was lower among families who had been long resident in the area and high among families that were more recently resident in the area. Now, there could be two processes that could go on to create this uh, result. One of them is that if you take the very fertile people from one area and put them in another, the people who remain on average have lower fertility, and the people in the new area have higher fertility. Uh, so if you transplant the fecund people from one area to another, you get exactly this differential effect that uh, that Peart's observed. But you also can imagine that people who lived a long time on the same plot of ground and were worried about inheritance for their children uh, would tend to diminish their fertility. And in fact, Josh Goldstein and I were able to reconstruct genealogies from the parish records and show that as you come down the generations, fertility became lower and lower and lower. So there are two processes going on that create this effect. Well, Sremetz, unfortunately, had not read this book. Uh, uh, Peartz uh, did a very good job and in fact anticipated by about 50 years a classic analysis done by Richard Easterlin uh, <clears throat> in an interpretation of falling fertility behind the American frontier um, in the northwestern United States in the, uh, in the 1900s. And in fact, when uh, Josh and I gave this paper at the population meetings, we entitled the paper Dick Easterlin in Slavonia. He had actually never been there. So the basic issue is, do we believe Relkovich's story about lurking Turks, or do we believe Sremitz's story about lackeys and running dogs? And what do we think about the abortion rates? I can say in advance that I don't think the abortion rates were as high as Sremitz and others uh, said. Um, and I'm pretty much on the side of the lackeys and running dog story rather than the lurking Turk story. The basic data for this analysis come from a series of censuses, uh, starting with ecclesiastical censuses in around 1760, uh, and then some more censuses appearing in the 1830s in the military area, then in the 1880s and in the early 1900s. Uh, there are a series of counts in about 25 parishes of numbers of baptisms and burials uh, uh, and marriages. Uh, and in seven parishes in the core of the area, uh, right here around Cernik and Novogradishtuk, right in here, um, I have a seven parish area, contiguous parishes, where we have, about, have assembled, with the assistance of uh, lots of people, including those in Zagreb, uh, about, uh, about uh, 200,000 uh, demographic events, baptisms, burials, and marriages. And we deal with these uh, by a, a technique called nominal data linkage or family reconstitution in which you try to reconstruct the lives of individual women by finding their marriage, finding their first child, finding their second child, then going on in this process until you find the death of the husband or the death of the wife or both. <clears throat> so 
having given you, and my advice to anybody who wants to do nominal data linkage on a database of this size is don't. Uh, so the first thing I want to show you is a result of some censuses and ask how these data might be interpreted. That keeps wanting to slide off there. These are plots <clears throat> of the crude birth rate, the number of births per thousand people from a series of different data sources, starting with some ecclesiastical and parish materials out here uh, in the 1760s, picking up some more materials around 1830 to 1847, and then with the entry of more census information as we come closer to the present time. You see several things in this graph. First, there is, although there's a lot of variability, there's a general downward slope. So throughout this entire region, fertility is declining from an average of around 55 per thousand to an average of around 40 per thousand. There's a great deal of annual variation even in the same place. For example, in the parish of Cernic, it's pretty small, and so you get a lot of uh, statistical variability with <clears throat> a lot of jumping around. But you also see that where the units are larger, as they are out here in some of the censuses, there's some fairly consistent differences between areas, even in the same area, so that, <clears throat> even in the same year, so that some places tend to have rather high fertility than other places. So I asked people in Zagreb, <clears throat> how come some areas have higher fertility than other areas? And the standard answer to that question is that fertility is high in those areas where there are lots of Serbs, because Serbs have high fertility. And they would give you a lot of folk psychological explanations about why Serbs have higher fertility than Croats. Well, in the 1901 census, you can actually get fertility rates by religious adherence and you can separate the Catholics from the Orthodox from the Protestants. And if you do that, and you, and you, you range these data along this axis according to the proportion of the county that professes to be Orthodox and thus Serb, and you have the fertility rate here, and here I'm using legitimate births for 1,000 persons between age 15 and 49 to sort of refine the rate a little bit, you do see a kind of general upward slope. So the more Serbs there are in a county, the higher the fertility is. But this turns out to be a classic example of spurious correlation because, in fact, in nine of the 12 counties, Catholic fertility is higher than Orthodox fertility. And the answer to this plot is simply that Serbs happen to live in counties where there are lots of very fertile Catholics. That's a better explanation <laughs> of, what's, of what's going on. Now, you can you can um, repeat this in the 1910 census, and I, I show this with a somewhat different kind of graph. Uh, here in the three series, I separate the Orthodox, which is the yellow, and the, and, I mean the, the Catholic is the yellow, and the Orthodox is sort of magenta, and the Protestants are sort of blue-gray. Now, also in 1910, you see that much, most of the time, Catholic fertility is actually higher than Orthodox fertility. The Protestants are all over the place. Some of the Protestants have the lowest fertility of anybody, 
and some of them have the highest fertility of anybody. So there's no real consistency if you try to analyze fertility rates by religious group. Uh, what seems to be going on is that most of your variation is coming from which county you are in. You can do this also to sort of get a cross-check on Nada Sremitz and her story about the Germans being prosperous, which they were, and fertile, which they were not. Um, in fact, you can do it in 1901 by language of mother, and you can compute the same kind of fertility rate. And here the yellow are the Slavic speakers, the Serbs and the Croats together, because I can't separate them by language. And the, um, the magenta are the Hungarians, and the uh, blue-gray is the Germans. Well, in fact, in many of these counties, the Germans have the lowest fertility of all. So Sremitz's story is not working either. Uh, so the point simply is here that insofar as you can estimate ethnic membership by looking at religion or looking at language, which are the two principal ways in which ethnicity is defined in the region, the ethnic explanation for differential fertility just doesn't wash. So I tried something else. I divided the counties into three categories. Those that were in the barren karst overlooking the Adriatic along the Dinaric Alps, uh, those that were urban in the sense that they contained a major city and its immediate hinterland, and those that were rural counties didn't contain a city and were not in the karst. Well, what you find is in the karst, you have high fertility. This is a place that economically finds child labor very useful for many tasks, principally in tending sheep and goats and geese and things like that, wandering over the rocky pastures. It's a place in which young adults frequently emigrate abroad to work and send remittances home. So high fertility is something of an economic advantage in this region. And of course, we know from many comparable data sets that urban fertility and fertility in the immediate environs of cities is generally low, and the rest of the counties are in the middle. In a very general way, and with one significant exception, fertility tends to decline from the northwest to the southeast in this region. I do not yet have the kind of information I'd like to have on soil productivity, on agricultural productivity, to try and do a more refined analysis of this, but in a very crude way, these broad ecological distinctions do more to explain differential fertility than any of the stories that you could tell about um, religion or about, um, or about language. Now, <clears throat> uh, we can look at uh, other aspects of demographic behavior. For example, <clears throat> we know from uh, early work by Ron Lee and subsequent work uh, for many countries of Europe by Patrick Galloway, that both mortality and fertility tend to respond <clears throat> to sudden shifts in the price of grain. They respond to these shifts in the price of grain even in societies in which people are not actually buying grain because most of the shifts in traditional economies in the price of grain are driven by broad regional weather changes that affect the supply of grain. So that when prices go up, it means that grain is short. And there are two general consequences of this. One of the consequences is 
with respect to mortality that when grain prices go up, mortality goes up. And it, it doesn't go up for the simple reason that you might think that people are starving and therefore dying. It goes up probably mostly because when grain is short, people, especially the men, go on the roads looking for food, looking for wage work so that they can buy what they're not able to produce. And in so doing, they come into contact with many more people than they would have come in contact with ordinarily. And disease transmission is greatly enhanced. This was particularly true in the 1830s when, as we'll see, there was a, a huge upward jump in the susceptibility of the population to death by reason of an increase in grain prices because this is the period of some of the great cholera epidemics of the 19th century. People went out looking for work and they got sick and they brought the cholera home and their families got sick and the death rates jumped enormously. Well. Uh, Patrick Galloway and I have done some analysis of, of uh, some of these data. And I want, there, are some, there are some big stories and some little stories on this graph. And in the interest of time, I'm only going to tell you about the big stories. One of the big stories, now what, let me say what this graph is. This graph is not a graph of the level of mortality. This is a graph of the proportional response of mortality to an increase in the grain price. So for example, if you get a 1% increase in grain price, how much of a percent increase do you get in mortality? This is what economists call the elasticity of mortality with respect to grain price. So up is bad, right? And down, and zero is good. I mean, okay. Things that are really close to zero don't mean very much because it's just stochastic variation. What you see here is, first of all, the dotted line is the military population and the solid line is the civilian population. And generally speaking, you see that the civil population responds more strongly to a price increase than the, than the military population did. And that's because the military population was in some senses buffered from these price changes because of the way their lands were administered. The big story in here is this huge increase after the Napoleonic Wars heading into about 1840 where the, the uh, sensitivity of the population increases markedly. What this is telling you is up here at the very peak is that a 1% increase in the price of grain will trigger a 2.5% increase in the mortality rate. That is a big response in mortality, and much of this is due to those cholera epidemics of the, of the 1830s. Then when civil emancipation occurs, there is a big drop in the sensitivity of this population. And we conjecture that the reason for that is because for a period of time in the civil population, and to some extent also in the military population, the fruit of a peasant's labor remained with the peasant household. It wasn't being siphoned off yet in compensation burden or in feudal taxes, and so they got to eat what they grew without giving it away, and so they had better stocks and could resist having to go. They didn't have to go out and look for work because they had enough in the barn, and so they were protected to some extent from the vagaries of the, of the economic system. Then you'll notice that Things get worse after 1860 for the civil serfs, and we conjecture that they get worse because this is when the recompensation burden of the landlords kicks in, and they can no longer keep as much of what they were growing for their own household use. 
Now, it's also possible to do this kind of analysis for fertility. The fertility story is a little harder to tell, and I'm only going to point out one thing on this graph. Uh, first of all, fertility responds in the opposite direction from mortality. When grain prices go up, fertility goes down, right? And it goes down for a complex series of reasons. First, some of them connected with mortality. For example, when the price of grain goes up and husbands go on the road to look for wage work, they're not at home and they don't get their wives pregnant. So fertility will then fall in the year following the price shock. And also, people may get a little nervous about their economic situation, and they may start to contracept. And that effect is also felt a year afterward, right? Because pregnancy is nine months long. The big story in this graph is, and down is bad, right? The further down you go, the stronger is the fertility response. Down is bad, and after about 1840, right? Lagging the mortality crisis by about a decade, you get a fertility crisis that the population begins to respond much more strongly than usually to these grain price <coughs> changes. So the general story here is that when things got really bad economically after the Napoleonic Wars, uh, <coughs> Malthus's positive check, the mortality check to population, kicked in very rapidly. And then after about a decade of delay, things were getting bad enough so that the population actually began to try to restrain their fertility even more because they were nervous about their economic situation. Now, this fertility effect has some very interesting aspects. <clears throat> One of them is that you can do this analysis, as we just did, for the combined cumulative effect on fertility over five years, which is what that last graph was. It's what economists would call the five-year lag sum of these elasticities. Here, we look just at the response in year zero of the price shock, in the same year that the price shock occurs, and we look at it one year afterward, and we call that lag one as opposed to lag zero. Now, Galloway has shown that over all of Europe <clears throat> and some other countries as well, like the Bengal presidency, that typically the fertility response, the negative fertility response, comes a year after the price shock for the reasons that I talked about. Husbands are away. People begin to contracept. This effect is not felt for nine months or a year. And you see that before 1830, right, you're getting no response at all, really, in the same year as the price shock, and you're getting a negative response at year one. It looks exactly like the rest of Europe. After 1830, if you split the data, you discover that the, the lag zero response, namely the shortfall in fertility in the same year as the price shock, becomes very strong, and in fact, lag one becomes positive because that's the recovery from this loss of fertility in the same year as the price shock. And you can't avoid a birth in the same year as a price shock unless you do it by abortion. And the point here in looking at these lag zero, lag one effects is that we think we detect here an intensification of the concern of the population about fertility control because of the economic reasons that we just talked about in the last graph. So this is a tip-off 
that probably there was a strong abortion response in the techniques of fertility control under conditions of economic crisis. Now, we're able to look into this a little more closely, and this gets uh, <clears throat> pretty complicated and a little technical, but it's so interesting that I'm going to do it anyway. Um, one of our graduate students, Reynaldo Gregori, and I have been working together for some time on uh, looking at the reconstructed lives of women, uh, looking at them month by month after their marriage. And we're doing what demographers recognize as a multiple decrement analysis, that you take a marriage and you start it off, and there are three ways uh, that this marriage can be eliminated from your consideration. Uh, first of all, the husband can die, and that's the end of that marriage, and we don't look at it again. Secondly, the wife can die, and that's the end of that marriage, and we don't look at it again. The third exit from this cohort is having a next child, because then the marriage is no longer at zero children but at one, or no longer at one but at two. And then we do look at that marriage again, but it's on the next page in the analysis. And you see what I mean? If there's a death of either spouse, we throw the marriage away as we look at the chances of what's going to happen to it. If a child is born, we start looking at it all over again uh, from the timing of the last birth. So the first graph I'm going to show you is a graph of the risks of these three different events, the husband dying, the wife dying, or the wife having another child. We're going to look at that at what demographers call parity zero, which means no kids yet. All right? So what do we see in this graph? First of all, and a lot of what we see in this graph makes us believe that our data are okay because the, the, the graphs conform to what we expect from other kinds of information. We see that women on average who get married wait around uh, a year and a half or two before they have their first child. That's just about right. That's what we expect. We expect conception and birth delays of about that much. Um, and so a lot of them have their first kid, and then uh, tapering off, you see that there are some women who take really a long time to have a first child, but most of the action <coughs> is over here in about a year and a half or two years. These women who have, a who have a child, the first child, on this graph, having started at zero, they now have one. They're not on this page anymore. They're on the next page, where we'll look at them in a minute, right? <coughs> This is male mortality, this thin line down here. It's not very high. It doesn't bump around very much. It doesn't rise very much with age. After all, people out here are six years older than they were at the beginning, right? Because these are months along the bottom, and this is 72 months. And, but these people are, on average, about 23 years old, so you don't expect mortality to increase very rapidly over the next six years. Uh, this dark line is female mortality. And the first question to ask is, why is female mortality higher than male mortality? Why are wives dying at a higher rate than their husbands? We don't expect that biologically. In fact, biologically, we expect just the reverse. Women are much more durable than men, um, and so we would expect these lines to be reversed, but they're not. The women have higher mortality. Why should the women have higher mortality? Well, there are two possible reasons. First of all, they're exposed to the risks of childbearing and of all of the other events that are associated with reproduction, including abortion, right? 
and the death rates from abortion were probably fairly high under the primitive conditions uh, prevailing. Secondly, this is a society in which, in general, the men eat first and the women get what's left over. So it's possible that the nutritional standard for women was lower and that they were more susceptible to disease. I think that's possible, but I really believe more in the risks of reproduction story about what accounts for this difference. There's one point here that I've, uh, where I put a red dot, and we're going to look at that red dot again. This red dot is in the actual underlying data series. These are moving averages to sort of smooth these crazy lines uh, out a little bit. This is the, the actual data point for a peak of mortality uh, that's occurring right out here, very close to when most of these other women are having their first child. Because these women who die on this page don't move to the next page because they didn't have a live birth, if they had a live birth and died in that live birth, they'd be on the next page. They're still on this page. These women died probably in the course of giving a stillbirth, right? Because that child was not baptized and was not recorded. And this is an interesting point because it lets us ask the question, what's the likelihood that a woman will die in a stillbirth? And we'll, we'll use that at a later point, but it's our only hope of estimating what this rate is. You notice something else about this line, and that is it sort of has a peak out here. And if we were to go through parity one, parity two, parity three, parity four, and look at the different pages in this analysis, we would always see some kind of a rise and fall in the maternal mortality rate of the women who did not have the next birth. It tends to move to the right just a little bit. And eventually, when the numbers of women get very small, you can't see it anymore because there's too much stochastic variability in the data. This, we conjecture. We conjecture that these are, this rise and fall in the deaths is, in, is the result of deaths from abortion by women who were contracepting and thereby delaying the conception date beyond the conception dates that were had by these women here. These are women who were delaying their conception as long as they could, and then when they discovered three or four years out that they were pregnant, they turned to abortion as a means of fertility control. The risks were high, and enough of them died to give us this little peak in the, in the graph. That's a conjecture. There is no way that I can prove that this is what's going on. And looking for, looking for causal effects in these kind of data is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Um, the, the needle is the signal, and the hay is the noise, and the signal-to-noise ratio is not very helpful uh, in this kind of information. But we do see this kind of effect. Now, if we go to parity one, which is the women who have had a first birth, a first live birth. These people are about 26 years old. Uh, we see that uh, this is the curve of the women who went on to have a second birth. This is their exit. They get on to the next page in the analysis. We see that the birth interval uh, 
out here averages about uh, maybe uh, two and a half or three years, which is just about exactly right for women who are breastfeeding their children for a long period of time. We see that female mortality continues to be higher than male mortality. We see this hump out here again, which we again conjecture is the result of women who had had one child and wanted to delay the second one, used contraception, discovered they were pregnant, and then aborted and, and suffered the risks of the high mortality that was associated with abortion. Then you also see the peak of women who died in the first month of giving birth to their first child. This is one of the high, we call this obstetrical peak mortality. It's a very high peak in the first birth. Women at the first birth are, are very subject to the risk of death, more than at any other time, except for women who are uh, uh, getting along toward the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth births when this risk also increases very sharply. So we see that a lot of women are dying here, right? Uh, and then the rate drops, but then it climbs again and we have this pump again. Now, if we go out to parity six, where we have women who've had lots of kids and have survived, we see some changes. First of all, we continue to see out to about here, pretty much generally through here, we see that female mortality is still higher than male mortality, probably because of the continuing risks of childbearing. Uh, we see that fertility is somewhat lower than it was before, which makes sense after women have had six children and they're on average 44 years old. We see that the delay is a little longer. This peak is a little more to the right than it was before. We're losing the hump. We're losing that hump. We may be losing the hump because of noisiness in the data. On the other hand, we may be losing it because these women who already have six children may not care if they have any more children. They may not be contraceptors. They may not be aborters. They just may be people who say, as people often do in the third world, it's up to God. If I get pregnant, I'll have a child, and that's the end of it. So we're losing the hump, but the mortality rate is still higher. Now, if you look at these data, you discover an interesting ultimate pattern. And the interesting ultimate pattern is, if without regard to parity, you simply look at the probability of death to husbands and to wives by duration of their marriage, you see that, as we have already observed, that the death rate for females is higher than the death rate for males. And it's higher until you get out to about 20 years of marriage, and then the two rates cross. Right? The two rates cross because after about 20 years of marriage, women are not subject to the same risks of reproduction that they were before. They're now 45 years old, and they're reaching menopause, and they're not going to get pregnant. So they're not subject to those same risks, and the rates cross. And the male mortality rate does what we expect male mortality rates to do, is to climb above the female rate. Uh, it's also possible that at this time, and we have some indication in the data that the best thing that can happen to a woman is for her husband to die, uh, because uh, then she's not, she's not, he's not going to get her pregnant anymore. And it's also quite likely um, that her sons in a joint household will take better care of her than their father ever did. So that's the other part. So the strategy for women is very clear. Have enough sons to take care of you, and when they grow up, shoot the old man. <laughs>
Now let's come back to some of our some of our central concerns. Uh, from this rather bumpy historical ride, um, I conclude that ethnic particularism, the idea of some cultural essence that obliges one group to behave in a different way from another group, is a poor explanation. Common responses to economic conditions, regardless of eth ethnic or cultural background, is a better explanation. I conclude that if we had just listened to the contemporary observers of the scene, we would have got it all wrong. If we had believed what they had told us, we would have got it all wrong. And it's only by meticulous quantitative observation that we can reconstruct the actual environment that the social actors were living in. It's only by that kind of meticulous observation that we can understand how their conceptualization fits the observed facts. We also see, and I won't bother you with the calculations on this, that abortion was clearly practiced, but it did not seem to be as frequent as the rhetoric, the political rhetoric, indicates. Uh, these villages were not nests of abortion. They might have been nests of lust and adultery, but they weren't nests of abortion. Um, and so uh, neither Butarats nor Sremets uh, were right. Now, unfortunately, ethnic particularism continues to be the dominant explanatory paradigm in the Balkans and in many other parts of the world. It's the wrong paradigm. Those explanations are not very good. The old-fashioned, evolutionistic, economic explanations do a somewhat, they're not perfect, but they do a better job. We can hope on our own ground, for our own issues, and in our own time, that we can avoid the trap of ethnic particularistic interpretation and ideas about causation here. And I think that Professor Moses, in his long-standing interest in the rise of rational democracy in post-colonial societies, would have endorsed that hope. Thank you very much. interesting talk with very important conclusions. And I want, before we have a few minutes of, um, of discussion, comments and questions, I want to invite all of you to a reception immediately following the talk in the Bechtel room, which is exactly here, right behind this wall. The wall will open up and there will be food and drink and you're all invited to celebrate with Professor Hamill. So, uh, questions or comments? Nelson. Uh, one thing you didn't mention, because you didn't have time, but I noticed it on the graphs of this, the scales differ between them, that the mean high obstetrical death increased dramatically with birth, such mm -hmm. that for the women in their sixth birth, was absolutely off the scale. Now, I thought yeah. you said that it was after the first book was not No, the, the highest 
if you do this age specifically, we look at women of the same age, right? Uh, in the same age group, women will have the highest mortality at the first birth. Uh, the women who have had six children, right, are much older. And so, so there's a simultaneous effect that the, the, there's a big bang effect at the first birth when women who find childbirth difficult are culled from the sample. After that, the risk falls, and then it climbs regularly on two axes, both with age and with uh, parity. So that Do you attribute this to the, the essence of women not being able to stand it, or to some other behaviors, such as uh, the uh, care of uh, cleanliness or something else? Well, I think that, you know, after six kids, I think the body is damaged. So you think it is I think there is a certain... I think they're exhausted. After all, these women have not only been bearing these children, they've been breastfeeding them for two years at a time, and there's an enormous drain. <laughs> Uh, physiologically, and if they have these births at very frequent intervals, which you have to do if you've had six kids, you have very little recovery time. So I think that's much of what is uh, much of what is going on. The highest mort uh, maternal mortality rates that we know of are those that occur to older women in their first birth. Women, for example, who would delay childbearing until an advanced age, and then have the first, they have an enormous mortality. It may be of interest to, to you on this campus to know that these patterns were first detected by uh, Jacob Yaroshalmi, who was a professor here in the School of Public Health uh, many years ago. He actually did it on data from the state of New York in the 1930s. But those patterns hold up all across the world. Thank you. Yes? Could you describe the, uh, the religious ethnic uh, character of this area, Moscow, Catholic, which, uh, was there any differentiation? There, there are, or there were at the time the, of the collection of these data, there were uh, no Muslims left in the area. Um, there were uh, many Catholics, and the Catholics, um, if they were Slavs, speakers of Serbo-Croatian, would have classified themselves as Croats. Um, and, but there were also German Catholics and Hungarian Catholics. Uh, there were some Protestants, and the Protestants, uh, none of the Slavs, with very rare exceptions, would have been Protestants. Um, and uh, so the Protestants tended to divide, to divide themselves between the Hungarians and the Germans. And the Orthodox were principally the Serbs. So that's the... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I cannot, I cannot cross-classify people in the censuses by um, language and religion. The census doesn't give me that cross-classification. I can either do it by language or I can do it by religion. Other questions? Yes, please. I've been working in the areas that you've been discussing, and the question I have, I don't know whether it's something that comes under your purview or not, but in looking at um, areas in family planning and in abortion, uh, and the tremendous frequency of abortion, particularly in Romania, uh, where uh, women are very open about the fact of they've had 30 and 40 abortions by age 40. Um, there is, parallel to this, I find a very, um, a very depressed mental attitude, which could be attributed to many things in, the, in that particular country, uh, as well as very self-deprecating attitude. And I'm wondering if you have ever uh, 
seen or correlated this or documented this kind of, any kind of association. It was so pronounced that, that I've been looking, trying to look into it ever since. I, I have, of course, I can't make those kinds of observations on the historical data. These people are all long dead. There's no, Sremetz's book is the only insight I have into the attitudes of the women. They seem to be pretty outspoken, pretty forthright. They seem to be risk takers. Um, they don't seem to be, or you don't get any indication from Sremetz's writing that, that these were a class of, uh, of uh, depressed, uh, downtrodden. I, so I don't I, if, I don't know, uh, but I don't have any evidence that that might be the case. Now, I should say that attitudes toward abortion and the techniques of abortion and the safety of abortion have changed remarkably in the course of, of this century. So what we observe, and for example, uh, uh, the abortion rates in the Soviet Union in the 1930s were approximately 50%. Half of all pregnancies were terminated by by abortion. Uh, what I do find most interesting in this area is that women expected their husbands to cooperate in birth control. In Tremetz's book, for example, there's a woman who's complaining about her husband because he wouldn't pay for the abortions and so forth, and then she says in the middle of it, she says, oh, and God, neche dama chulva, which means he won't protect me, the creep. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so you see there was an expectation of spousal cooperation. And so you do get the feeling that the husbands and the wives are, are in this together. The, the situation in Bosnia and Croatia, from my experience, is different from, let's say, Romania and some of the other sure. neighboring yeah. countries. Yeah. Well, the Romanian story is a very sad story okay. because incredible economic collapse over decades. Well, and also, the, the, there was uh, any kind of uh, birth control was, was illegal. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, for many of these women, as was the case in the Soviet Union, still is the case in the Soviet Union, that abortion is the only means of birth control you've got if the husband won't cooperate. I mean, there's nothing else to do. And that becomes not just the last resource, but the last recourse, but the first one. The only thing you can do. Please. You kind of discarded the idea that religion plays a significant role. Of course, you're aware of Arthur Imhoff's uh, study of uh, comparative study of Catholics and Protestants in uh, about the same time in, in, in the German uh, parts of Germany. Especially with respect to infant mortality rates. Yeah, and he discovered some dramatic differences between fertility rates and, and, uh, and the methods of uh, contraception, et cetera, et cetera, in the, in the Protestant parts and the uh, Catholic parts. And, well, how do you, uh, do you agree with him, or do you uh, have uh, certain reservations? And the second question, did you ever encounter the phenomenon which he discovered, uh, that there is some kind of what he calls a postnatal birth control, that the people give, that the women give birth to their child, and they simply let die, starve children to death uh, at the age of 12, two days. And he discovered that in the 18th century and, and, and that time. Did you ever do encounter this? There's, uh, there are accusations, especially in the medical and the clerical literature from this area. There are accusations of infanticide. Um, I don't have any evidence of it uh, in the parish records. Uh, this is very interestingly an area in which uh, children, and this is not the case in many Catholic countries, but here children are baptized on the day of birth, and they're usually baptized by the midwife. 
and the, in the Chronicle of the Monastery of Cernic, there are notations. The, the midwives have been trained. That's all it says. It doesn't say what they were trained to do. They were trained to baptize children, not to deliver them. Every woman knew how to deliver a child, but they had to be trained to baptize it, which means it would be a, it's very hard for a Catholic to kill a baptized so I would think that the incidence of that kind of infanticide through neglect would be fairly low in this area. We also don't see any difference in the sex ratio at baptism. Usually it is the girl babies who suffer the most from this kind of practice, and we don't see that offset. So I would say maybe some certainly deformed children were put out and exposed. And I mean, this goes back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, and so I would expect to see that, but not much otherwise. As far as the difference between Protestants and Catholics, <clears throat> my most detailed data, because of the nature of the records and the sizes of the samples, only come from Catholic parishes. I can only compare the religious groups in the censuses. I can't do the detailed analysis of family reconstitution for the Orthodox, and I can't do it for the Protestants because they don't have the records. So th there is... There's a potential hole in, in this analysis, and until I can get those kinds of information, I can't, I can't handle that issue. Yes? Uh, do you have any uh, overall information on the magnitude of uh, infectious disease and its impact on mortality and uh, infectious disease in general, epidemics and maybe uh, chronic uh, effects? There. <coughs> um, chronic disease. The, the, the cause of death data um, in, the, in the burial records is not very good. Uh, deaths are identified by, by cause, um, but uh, the, the language that's used, as in most uh, records from the, the 19th century and so forth, is really rather inspecific. The person died of a fever, the person died of general debility. You, just, you don't know what the disease was. We do know some things. We know that malaria was endemic in the area, especially in the lowlands around the rivers, out into the Banat before the draining of the swamps. Um, and it must have been a real killer, especially of children. Um, in, the, uh, in the Chronicle of the Monastery of Tsernik, there is a petition from uh, the members of a village whose location had been moved. The landlord told them to move the village, probably to new land lower down. And they were complaining and said, ever since we moved, everybody's been getting sick. We want to move back. So you do get indications of this. There's also, in the lowland areas, there is a peculiar kind of nephritis that was carried. Um, um, the, the pigs were the vector. It was carried in pig feces. And this is uh, an area where the wells, the water table is very high, so the wells are very shallow. And there's not very much cleansing of the rainwater as it soaks into the, into the water table. And with a shallow well, you're just pumping out polluted water. So this kind of nephritis was fairly common in the lowlands. So we have some information, but not a lot. We do know that cholera was a big killer in the 19th century, and we know that all the way into the 18th century, bubonic plague was a big killer. And in fact, the military border, after the Austrians were done with their overseas adventures, uh, fighting you know Napoleon and so forth. Um, by the way, the border of France was only a lot, hundred kilometers from from this zone in the Napoleonic War. Um, we, uh, uh, we know that uh, the Austrians established, uh, used the military border uh, primarily in its original sense as a cordon sanitaire against the bubonic plague. 
no, no goods were allowed to come into Habsburg territory unless they had been laid out in the sun for several days to, uh, to disinfect them. There's a really funny story about uh, the Austrian guards uh, who were in, the, uh, in Transylvania at one point along the military border as it extended out into Hungary, and there's a report of them chasing a smuggler. And the smuggler knew very well that when the Austrian guards found something, an article of clothing or something, uh, they would handle it with iron rods and carry it over to a place where it could be exposed to the sunlight. So there's this marvelous story of this uh, smuggler fleeing from the Austrian border guards, disrobing as he went, taking off his shoe, taking off his pants, taking off his shirt, throwing him in the bushes to slow these guys down. And he escaped, <laughs> naked. As I said, Gene Hamill is a storyteller, and a very good one. So I'm going to invite you to continue the discussion over a glass of wine and some hors d'oeuvres, and thank once again Professor Hamill. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.